afternoon or evening, as the case may be, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Overanalysts podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to the show today. Uh, my name is Brady, or the Overanalyst on Twitch and associated social media, and I'm joined, as always, by Martina, or Seth the Overwitch. Hi. And Mate, or uh, Comrade Potato. Finally got both names right, yes? Nice. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Just took you eight episodes, but it's fine. Hey, it's all right. This is uh, I attained quality faster than most people uh, claim the new Star Trek shows have, so that's something I can be proud of. Um, today, we're tackling kind of a broad swath of topics based very roughly around uh, industry development darling uh, Bioware Corp., um, but I also want to take this opportunity, if I can, seeing as several of my research materials got lost in the mail, to um, speak with you guys about like Western-style character-driven RPGs more generally, and kind of the way that that subgenres evolved over time. Um, like the the types of games I'm describing, and I'm certain there's a more like technical term for them, are titles like uh, Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale, um, Pathfinder Kingmaker. Um, Dragon Age, Mass Effect, many of which were developed by Bioware, but not all, um, where a lot of the emphasis in design is on giving players a great deal of opportunities to define their character, not just through like attributes and origins and things like that, but um, through responding to situations in conversation or like exploration in numerous ways, right? That at least insofar as the player's aware, regardless of what's going on under the hood, seems to have an effect on the way the game proceeds, right? Like, what you have a bunch of different options, and what you do matters. Um, what are you guys, like, first experience with these types of games, or what are some of your favorite experiences with these kinds of games? Well, for me, basically, my one of my first experiences with PC video games in general was Neverwinter Nights. Mm -hmm. So, for me, when I was a uh, little... When somebody would say a PC game, a Neverwinter Nights type of game would be what I imagined. So uh, that style of RPG, you know, with some Dungeons and Dragons rule set in the background. Which meant invariably that early on you would miss about 95% of your attacks. Yep, basically. Like, uh, you would miss almost everything, but at least they give you numbers why you're missing. Still yes. doesn't mean shit if you don't speak English like I didn't at that time. So I was just looking at the numbers and being like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> uh, I've never played Neverwinter Nights, but I know it has a great reputation. And I believe it was a Bioware project as well, right? The first one was. Uh, yes. Yeah. The second was developed by a different studio, though, I think. Let me see. Um, while I'm looking this up, uh, well, well, wait, hold on. Here we go. Um, oh, it was developed by Obsidian, um, oh, another yeah. mm -hmm. studio that specializes in this type of video game, and actually picked up several properties for sequels uh, from Bioware, including Knights of the Old Republic, the Star Wars oh, yeah. IP, that they produced the acclaimed but kind of unfinished sequel to. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what about you, Mate? What are some of your experiences, or first experiences with this kind of subgenre? Well, like, the first one I actually played was the the uh, Knights of the Old Republic, mm -hmm. actually. Which, it's, it's kind of actually nice to play a game where it really does matter which, like, uh, dialogue choice or which, yes. like, ending of a quest you choose. Because it's like, you know, Cyberpunk, where you have, like, five choices, and all of them lead to the same ending. All of them are fuck you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just uh, phrased differently, yeah. Also, sometimes it's literally, sometimes it's just metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. My, my favorite dialogue option, as an aside, in Cyberpunk um, is an optional-like prompt that is offered immediately after you are Keanu-fied at the end of the prologue. Um... Like, you know, you're being brought back to life, you're being resurrected by your doctor. And one of the dialogue options appears just as fuck, followed by an ellipsis. And <laughs> I, I was thinking, oh, my character's gonna, like, express either the, the pain or state of confusion they're in, and we'll learn a bit more about that, right? No, no, the entirety of the dialogue it results in is... 
fuck. <laughs> Great writing. Uh, I I love the extent to which you can you can um, express yourself in that game. But sorry, sorry, potato. You were saying like you really appreciate games where the choices you make really do matter, right? Instead of just giving you this veneer. Not, not always. I mean, sometimes you just want to play a game where you just kill a bunch of shit and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But sometimes you want to play something that actually has some, like, feeling of, oh, I actually worked for this goal. I actually <laughs> had to put in effort and, you know, make choices. But choices suck. But I don't like choices. As a narrative tool, I think actual, like, impactful choice works very well in um, forcing a character to become in, or a player, rather, to become invested in characters and setting. Um, because if the choices you make impact the world around you as you play through a game, I just find odds are greater that regardless of how they're, they're written or uh, how they come across, I'm going to care more about those people and places. Because I'm being asked, okay, what do you want ideally to happen to this place? What do you want to happen to this person? Um, and it's it's just a great hook for narrative engagement. And something that Bioware in particular has done historically very well. Um, my first experience is just for the record, since I, I am a little bit younger and was uh, brought up largely as a console peasant, um, were with... Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic on PC when I was very, very young that I did not get engaged with or interested in at all. Again, all of the, the numbers and the fact that I missed seemingly every attack made me think, oh, well, th this isn't very good. Um, I was like six years old at the time, so you can imagine. Um, <laughs> but when I was older, I remember when I got my, I think my PS3 or my, my Xbox 360, one or the other. I borrowed a copy of God Above, this was like my first serious experience with the genre, of Fallout 3 from a friend. And if you've not played Fallout 3, don't worry. If you've played Fallout 4 or um, Fallout 76 or basically any Bethesda project since 2006, you have, don't worry. Um, and even though that game offered relatively few opportunities for really deep character building. I loved the way that quest lines always offered multiple resolutions and that I could interact with NPCs or the world around me to get more information, like like a detective, right? I'm investigating this this world. I'm investigating this community or these characters to find out what my ideal solution for them is, how I want to resolve the quest. And something about that, that direct engagement with an impact on the narrative absolutely hooked me. And to this day, that style of game, usually done far more competently and with greater detail than Bethesda would ever um, be able to accomplish, um, remains like my favorite type of video game design. I, I grew to love projects like uh, Mass Effect, which hooked me and actually was one of my favorite franchises and remains one of my favorite franchises, but that I really got into um, during a, a pretty like dark time in my life, and so remains kind of near and dear to me. Even even in light of Andromeda, I still love the series. Um, like Dragon Age, like uh, I got into Baldur's Gate later, but some of the, the best properties I've played in that kind of subgenre include um, Alpha Protocol by Obsidian Entertainment, and... Um, Honestly, Mass Effect 2, um, Pillars of Eternity. God, the Pillars of Eternity games are so, so good. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry, this is all long form. Suffice it to say, this is my favorite subgenre of gaming, and it's something I'm very, very passionate about. But that's neither here nor there. Bioware <laughs> specifically, what do you guys know about the company, and what's kind of your position on who they are, or what they've produced, and where they're at today? So I think that they are one of the most uh, famous companies that uh, we as uh, consumers know that they at some point were at the peak and then they just started plummeting down uh, when it comes to quality and when it comes to uh, basically 
just in general everything that is happening around the company like most often they are in the newspapers like in the gaming newspapers uh, uh, because they either have done something wrong or they're they released a shitty game or s something else happened but nowadays rarely they're uh talked as you know um high quality um uh game game development company but correct me if i'm wrong like since you seem to read more of these periodicals than i do Mm -hmm. The general perception seems to be Bioware has really fallen from grace, but yeah. they a lot of people still have hope for them. There's still yeah. like a lot of a lot of uh, prediction that they'll be able maybe to turn themselves around. Unlike say um, a, a Blizzard or an Activision mm -hmm. or uh, an Ubisoft. Well, yeah. like the difference is they just plummeted down in quality. They didn't mm -hmm. turn into complete assholes. Right. Which is what the other ones are doing. Like, Blizzard has some decent games. Like, even though people are, like, shitting on them for no content on certain games. They do. You're just playing too much. But, like, <laughs> like, you know, as a company, they're assholes. Right. It's pretty much everyone. Even towards their own fucking employees. And pretty and... much every bigger company as well. And those bad business practices, that, that poor treatment of employees, of, of one's audience, seems usually to be linked to really poor game design, right? That's largely why um, WB Studios games tend to be jam-packed with uh, microtransactions or like cheap little DLC. It's why Ubisoft decided to cram a microtransaction store into every bloated, repetitive open-world game they design. The bad con the bad practices informed by like quote unquote asshole like publishers or developers, right, seem mm -hmm. to be directly correlated to the production of what we would consider bad games. Except and Bioware's unique in that they've just made a handful of really bad games. Yeah, except Rockstar. They really have their slave driving to like to a T. They're they're doing it really well. They're they're, you know, torturing their employees, making them crunch, and also making good games, so you know. <laughs> just like Studio Bondi. <laughs> the folks behind L.A. Noir, which I'm fairly certain that is the most abusive wor uh, workplace in the industry I think I've ever heard of. Yeah, at um, least that we know about. But uh, yeah, uh, on on that note, Mate, what's what's your um, kind of outlook on Bioware and kind of where they they've gone over the years? Well, like you know, like like you, you guys have said that their quality of games hasn't been. You know that 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 really good. You know <coughs> anthem. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, but that was a nasty call. It's not like they're like you know at the verge of just you know completely disappearing. They can still make a good game and come back. So mm -hmm. there's not that many controversies either behind them. Although you know, uh, you guys know that like the dialogue wheel wheel. That's yes, most of their games. Mm -hmm. actually patented that crap really they have the patent on it i'm not sure if it expired yet but uh, they actually got it patented like the wow yeah so for for those who are unaware the the dialogue wheel that mate is re i'm referring to first appeared i believe in the original mass effect and it is a relatively simplified um, dialogue uh, selection uh, mechanic, wherein players are usually presented with, uh, depending on the game, four to six, once in a while, like for specific choices, there will just be two uh, dialogue options arranged uh, around the perimeter of like a little wheel, and you just flick your control stick in the, the direction of the one you'd like to select and confirm. And the dialogue wheel as a whole has been criticized for significantly simplifying the often much larger and less um, uh, less immediately um, morally unambiguous uh, dialogue selection menus that were incorporated into earlier Bioware games like Knights of the Old Republic or Dragon Age Origins, which at times would have, what is it, guys, sometimes up to like 10 different ways to respond substantially oh, yeah. to events or um, like other characters. Uh, and in the way it's implemented, usually 
in Mass Effect for certain, but also in other um, properties like Dragon Age to a lesser extent, is that good or amicable options are uh, aligned with the top of the wheel and options become increasingly violent or antagonistic or crass, uh, more cyberpunky as you get to the bottom of the wheel. So it kind of removes any nuance in um, reading and selecting dialogue options, like, huh, which one of these really communicates what I want to say? Um, mm -hmm. Because you're not really selecting a specific statement you would like to make to the characters or to the world. Usually you're given a small snippet of a much larger uh, conversation your character is going to have, and you're just picking, do I want the nice one, the neutral one, or the mean one? That's it. But they patented it. Yeah, which is, that's kind of a dick move. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Because first of all, uh, usually these things are written really, really vague. Like, as vague as you can, but specific enough that you actually get it approved. And that way <laughs> you can, yeah, that way they can actually squeeze some money out of people who, you know, make something of their own, but there's like a 30% overlap and that's enough to... Um, not allow those people to get a patent or just not allowed to use it. And if I remember correctly, they, need, they didn't even describe it as a wheel. It can be any shape. So, you know, <laughs> you can't make your own game and make it a, you know, a diamond shape or a trapezoid or anything. It's well, literally that kind of menu for choosing dialogue. Can't use it. And I just checked the expiration date is um, October 2029. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and it well, was uh, they got it in uh, uh, application assigned two thousand and seven, so twenty two years. Yeah. There goes my hopes of uh, developing a game with a conversation cube. But you're like thinking, okay, sure, they they you know they they came up with it. You know why wouldn't they protect it? Well, the thing is, gaming as it is, you know, pretty much every game will make something of their own that's like innovative but not too much because you don't want to overwhelm the players or you know people who are watching the videos whatever but you also borrow a lot of shit from the other games from oh from yeah other studios you see oh these guys are doing so well let's like not copy it completely but let's make something similar i would draw you your attention to all of anthem <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then and then you're like, oh, I made this neat thing. Uh, no one else gets to use it. Fuck you guys. But I'm gonna use all of your other stuff. Yeah, like uh, when Bethesda tried to uh, copyright or did a copyright. What was it? Uh, scrolls. Oh no, God, oh, yes, they actually did. <laughs> <laughs> Violent googling. Um. Or well, was it not that they copyrighted it? It's just somebody else was making a game called Scrolls and they weren't allowed to call it that. Yeah, mm -hmm. Scrolls and... What was it? The developers of the Banner Saga who tried to copyright both Banner Saga. and Saga? Well, I think uh, Candy Crush beat them to the Saga part. Uh... Yes, no, I, I think that was the case. Either the Candy Crush devs tried suing the Banner Saga folks or vice versa. Oh no, I think Candy Crush devs sued anyone who had any saga word in there or candy. Or even that has like the um, match tree type of game, even though they didn't come up with that concept well, of the game. Yeah. I, I guess they need to use all those riches to develop a time machine so they can go back uh, about 1300 years and serve a court notice to the Norse. Or, you know, just develop a time machine and go and stop themselves from being born <laughs> um on that note <laughs> um bioware corp uh i i'm if it's all right with you guys i'll give just like a really brief like foundation like kind of uh exposition on where they mm -hmm. came from and then we can actually take a deep dive into their early catalog i've I'm still waiting to talk about the more recent games that are kind of garbage because I'm waiting for a book that is lost somewhere <laughs> in the subterranean reaches of the Tennessean postal system. <laughs> lost in the snow. So, Bioware actually derives its name, I believe, in part from, you know, like, biology or uh, biological XYZ. 
Um, and it was founded by a pair of uh, friends who had recently graduated from medical school. So by two doctors. And at least early on, they uh, worked on medical simulation uh, programs and technology, right? So like training aids, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, they, they both apparently had some kind of uh, background in coding or programming uh, on a pretty foundational level that they either picked up or had to learn for their job or something like that. Anyhow, they uh, decided to develop their own video games uh, after uh, developing this, this medical simulation uh, software because I believe they just kind of really loved them and had the technology available and the knowledge necessary to, to create them. So in May 1995, the company was formally established in uh, Canada, I believe. Alberta? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and they, uh, they didn't develop an RPG that we would recognize as a real... Um, like Bioware-like, until, let's have a look-see, uh, their second release, Baldur's Gate, in 1998. So it took them some time to get this out. Uh, but that, of course, is the, like, seminal genre-defying uh, CRPG set in, uh, is it the Forgotten Realms from Dungeons & Dragons? Uh, wait. Yeah, yeah. I think so, yeah. Um... And Baldur's Gate, for the time, was really kind of revolutionary, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know, I've not played much of it myself, because, it, let's be real, great game though it is, its actual interface and gameplay have not aged well. Yeah. Um, but it was massive, right? Like, in, in size. Like, how much content they packed into this thing. Yeah, also it was 98, and you could play with 16 people on a network. Yeah, that's right. And it also featured an incredibly faithful interpretation of, like, advanced Dungeons & Dragons uh, game mechanics. So anybody yeah, exactly. familiar with the tabletop could pick up Baldur's Gate and be right at home with the way the game worked. The only difficulty being you had to control and micromanage an entire party. Um, and suffice to say, Baldur's Gate did very, 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 very well. Um... Because I think at this time, isn't it safe to say that the PC audience would have been a little bit more hardcore and attuned to uh, things like tabletop gaming than the console audiences would have? Mm, yeah. So there were people who were interested, um, and it received rave reviews, so the game did quite well for itself, earning um, an expansion, um, mid-1999, Tales of the Sword Coast. Uh, they... Featured, or they, they also released, I'm seeing here, MDK2, which is a sci-fi sci third-person shooter that looks okay. It looks okay. <laughs> um, the next game they would release that I'm really familiar with, though, is Baldur's Gate 2 Shadows of Am in 2000. So, like a lot of these companies we've charted on the Overanalyst so far, Bioware, like, in their heyday like so many development houses in the 90s, were just churning out games left, right, and center. Like, there's no break here, right? Um, and am I correct in saying it was the combination of Baldur's Gate 2 and Neverwinter Nights that really got this company over, like, on the, the wide scale? Uh, I would say so. Like, Baldur's Gate 2 was really, really, really popular, and I remember that Neverwinter Nights uh, brought even more people into the whole um, Forgotten Realms world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm also not, not sure, were they also the ones that uh, made Icewind Dale? Uh, yes, I think. Hold yeah. on, hold on. No, they weren't. Um, no? No, I believe some personnel may have been uh, involved in it mm -hmm. but let's see that might be an obsidian game uh okay yeah or, or sorry a proto obsidian game yeah mm -hmm. it was developed by black isle studios which is one of uh or was the predecessor to obsidian entertainment like a lot of mm -hmm. black isles personnel would go on to found obsidian right i was gonna say that basically uh baldur's gate neverwinter nights and icewind dale are, are the trifecta of forgotten realms uh uh set games so yeah mm -hmm. indeed uh and the Baldur's Gate games did very, very well. And I believe yep. personnel from Black Isle were involved in publishing Baldur's Gate. Isn't that right? Um, mm, I know yep. that they worked together with Bioware on those titles. 
-hmm. But something else I'm seeing that's really impressive is while they're releasing all these games, more or less one after the other, Baldur's Gate 98, Baldur's Gate 2 2000, Neverwinter Nights 2002, each of these received at least one, but most of them received several, really meaty expansions in the years following their release. Yeah. Um, Baldur's Gate 2, in particular, received the acclaimed Throne of Bale expansion, which mm -hmm. um, people still rant and rave about to this day. Uh, and the Neverwinter Nights expansions were massive, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. They weren't the size of the of the base game, but they were quite massive. Yeah, but like the game itself was just. I mean, if you make a game where you let people DM and play D and D, basically in a, like a. Is that does that count as three D? Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. That, that was. It is three D. So yeah. it is. But yeah. It's something that people are still trying to make because that shit will like be great, especially when it comes to online D and D playing. Yes, mm -hmm. roll twenty as good as it may be. I, you know, guys, uh, you know, Seth. I think we're gonna switch our uh, D and D session to Neverwinter Nights. Oh yeah, <laughs> why not? Because uh, I don't have the maps in there, but yeah, uh. this is just for. Have Ooh, used it. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Brady. Oh no, no, sorry. I was just going to ask. People have used it for that purpose over the years, right? Like creating custom dungeons and things oh, like yeah. that that they can effectively DM their friends through. Oh yeah. You can in those games. Uh, there are uh, editors, so you you could without a problem make your own maps. Yeah, there's like a tool set that just lets you build your own yep. entire world, encounters, traps, items, everything, anything you uh -huh. can make. Hmm. That sounds amazing. So um, now I just read that um, the same engine that was used to build Baldur's Gate was used uh, with Icewind Dale series as well. Yes. So that is why I thought that it was created by the same company. But it could be, as you said, that like the personnel was the same. Just yeah. Some of the personnel, and I believe yeah. the same engine was also used for Planescape Torment. I've never played that one. Have as far as it? world building and narrative go, I, I've not played it myself, but as far as world building and narrative go, I want to say it may be the most highly acclaimed of like the old school D&D &D isometric RPGs. Lots of people would say Baldur's Gate 2, but I've also seen scores of folks online say Planescape had the best narrative. Mm -hmm. um, let's see what else we have here as I dig deeper. Okay, now we finally start getting to the stuff that I, I remember and am familiar with. Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic is released in 2003 for Windows, and for the first time uh, for a Bioware-developed game, uh, sorry, second time, that MDK2 uh, third-person shooter got a Dreamcast release, oh boy, uh, oh, wow. as well as a PS2 release a year later. Um, KOTOR received a, a console release on Xbox uh, exclusively. And I remember playing this, as I said, when I was young and being captivated by the story and all the different ways I could interact with people. But again, being turned off by the fact that one of those ways apparently wasn't hitting them when I intended to. <laughs> um, Knights of the Old Republic kind of represents a transitional phase in the company's um, developmental and design ethos, I think. Mm -hmm. Because they retained as many elements of, like, deep interactive storytelling and character building as they could to create a really, really cool narrative that digs quite deep into a lot of Star Wars' most famous uh, locales and characters' species. Uh, there's one example in particular I'll talk about in a minute. While attempting mm -hmm. very briefly, to a very mild extent, to kind of streamline and increase the accessibility of gameplay mechanics. But uh, make no mistake, and uh, Mate, you can back me up on this, you need to be fairly knowledgeable, if not about D&D &D rules, just about tabletop rules in general, and be very intentional about the way you build your character if you want to have a halfway decent time in KOTOR. It is not even remotely a game you can just kind of feel your way through. Yeah, you'll definitely be better on your second playthrough than on your first. Yes. <laughs> but we've been talking about the quality... Oh, sorry, go ahead. As long as you have the ability to play, like, more than once, have it not be exactly the same, mm -hmm. be able to enjoy multiple playthroughs, that's a 
pretty good game. And also for just for the love of God, if you're playing Kotor, just just keep the Wookiee with you. Keep uh, <laughs> Zelvar with you at all times. You'll thank me for it later. Um, <laughs> but what I love about that game is the fact that it's a Star Wars story that really focuses more on, as the way Bioware alone could back in the day, really exploring, like, just the day-to-day goings-on and the societies of this world without so much the focus just being on this black-and-white Jedi-Sith conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, There's this one quest line that I remember, because I played through the game in full for the first time, I want to say, two to three years ago. And was just blown away. Um, there's this this quest line on Tatooine, which you get to visit about halfway through the game, where if you make a series of choices properly, if you be the very best gray Jedi you can and make choices that aren't just dogmatic uh, in their adherence to the Jedi Code, but are actively good for all the people around you, you will be able to endear yourself to the Tusken people, to the Sand people. Mm-hmm. And despite their extreme violence and xenophobia, you will actually be able to speak with them. And finally, I think not for the first time in expanded universe material, but certainly for the first time in any kind of visual medium, you get to learn about their society and belief systems and history. And it's both a fascinating and a really humanizing little uh, segment of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh and it demonstrates some of the best writing Bioware's ever ever produced. But Kotor, Kotor is where it's at, I think. Um, and I I can't name many more like console RPGs that are like just head and shoulders better, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it also made all the money in the world. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, but it was followed up by a game that I actually like even more. Jade Empire released um in two thousand five around the world. Uh, on Xbox, and a couple years later for Windows. This is a relatively short, but very, very deep game inspired and set in a world based on uh, traditional, like, imperial Chinese mythology. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's notable, because really think about this. We have, of course, scores of games, I would argue too many games and settings, based on, like, Um, Greek mythology, increasingly on Norse mythology, a fair few largely from Japan that incorporate wonderful aspects of Japanese myth and legend. But have we seen many games tackle, like, other world mythologies at length? Uh, Especially, like, Chinese mythology, which is one of the richest canons in, like, folkloric history, right? Have we? Until then, no. That's right. It was it was one of the first, certainly one of the first in the West to do so at length. And the end result is one of my favorite game worlds I've ever explored. Rife with spirits and scores of different fighting styles and um, partners that you can unlock through detailed exploration. A big, beefy arena side quest line. You know how much I love me a good mm-hmm. arena quest line. And... Um, a wonderful little side quest where you're dealing with an idiotic uh, colonizer voiced by John Cleese uh, that that ends in you getting a fighting style that is literally just shooting people with a musket. Yeah. Uh, the, the game is packed with a lot of great character development and charm, but I also believe it was the first Bioware project I can think of that was significantly rushed. Isn't that right? Yeah. At least I think it was rushed. Let me see here. Um... Never mind. Um, I can't find anything off the top of my browser, but uh, the game definitely feels rushed as the last several chapters take about as long. The last three chapters collectively take about as long as the first one mm-hmm. does. Um, yeah. But uh, do either of you guys have any experience with or knowledge of Jade Empire, by the way? I just remember the I... name. I've never played it myself. Um... There is a port available for iOS if you want to play it in a way that just makes you really sad. Um, <laughs> it's it's a good game, though. It's well worth it. Um, I don't think that, personally, I've played uh, any of the Pi- Bioware games after um, Neverwinter Nights until uh, Dragon Age. Which Dragon Age? First one, Origins. Okay, so that was released in 2009. Let's let's talk about that, because Dragon Age has become one of the companies to, like, 
uh, trademark series. Um, mm-hmm. And it was released a year after, sorry, just one quick aside, the incredible uh, action RPG, Sonic Chronicles The Dark Brotherhood. Oh yes, everybody remembers that one. Which was Bioware's first terrible game. Um, it was a very by-the-numbers kind of bland DS RPG, notable more than anything else for its soundtrack, which sounded kind of like somebody just puked on a Casio and then threw it out a window. Nice! My favorite um, genre. In Puke fact, music. let me see. Puke tunes. Puke um, tunes, yes. Let me see. I've got to find this. Um, audio, music. Music and story received mixed reviews. No, hold on. I, I've heard somewhere, I think it was on Matt Kowalewski's What Happened series oh, over on YouTube. Happened? I love that one. That, um, what happened, well, what happened to the, the game's soundtrack is that somehow it all got recorded, but then was corrupted or lost somehow, or there was some kind of licensing dispute. What the so hell? They just had to really hastily slap together a bunch of, like, MIDI covers of old Sonic music. This this led to, again, what sounded like just a Casio plinking away like a jazz version of the Green Hill Zone theme or something. Uh, and this for a big, deep, rich story set in the Sonic the Hedgehog universe. It was very bad. I, I owned the game. For which platform was it released? DS. Oh, DS. Ah, of course. But for as bad as the game can be, Metacritic puts it at 74 on the critic score and 6.9 on the user score. 74, still less than the uh, IGN high watermark of Imagine Party Babies. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they rated a game called Imagine Party Babies, a shovelware minigame compilation about changing diapers and brushing teeth, a 7.5. Nice. Beautiful. Also, you know, just for reference, Cyberpunk is 7.1. Uh, of course it is. <laughs> So that means it's worse than Party Babies, but just oh a little. God. Yeah. That game that got its own uh, yellow tweet uh, today, again. So Of course it did. Yeah. <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> again. We're sorry, yeah. We got hacked a couple of weeks ago, remember that? So, well, shit happens. Okay, so... Oh, yeah. Just one more thing. I do have to say the 7.1 score is for PC. For the PS4, it's 3.6. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. There we go. Yeah, big um, th- Those are both pretty fair ratings, I would say, actually. Yeah. Um, But Dragon Age, sorry, I-, I had to take us on a tangent to visit, like, the blasted wasteland of mid-2000 Sonic the Hedgehog really quickly. Um... Just just because we should never allow ourselves to forget what the Hedgehog once was. Um, <laughs> let's talk about Dragon Age, the f- medieval, like, high fantasy role-playing series that I think, uh, Tina, both you and I absolutely mm-hmm. adore. Why don't you oh, share yeah. uh, your experiences with an evaluation of the first game, Origins, which... Uh, right. So the, the reason why I loved Origins so much is that when I first played it, it reminded me of Neverwinter Nights so much. Yeah, I basically had the entire Neverwinter Nights experience all over again, um, like all from building relationships with characters, from the type of combat, everything. It was just uh, like was reminding me of Neverwinter Nights. Um, also, I remember that it was uh, quite like a big game at the time. Uh, everyone was talking about it. Even I, I'm not sure. Did I go to school? high school then yeah i think i was in high school then um even the people that were not really big into gaming knew about the name so it it was a big thing to talk about at that time oh yeah yeah and it was compared to other games that we discussed previously like those that use just straight up D &D rules Mm -hmm. i feel like its gameplay was way more accessible not simplified Mm -hmm. at all but uh, they did a much better job of explaining the various ways that, like, status effects and damage outputs and item effects and what have you actually interact with one another. It was easier to understand for people that do not play D&D. Yes, exactly. 
Um, and they also made it to where the combat and general, like, gameplay flowed a bit better, because there is a distinction, I think, between what works well for a group of people all set around, like, a kitchen table, uh, playing a game together, um, mm -hmm. based largely on paper and imagination, and what plays well and flows well for a single, single-person experience um, in, like, a, a digital world. Like, just the, the pacing yeah. is going to be and should be different. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, in Neverwinter Nights, as much as I loved it, the combat was extremely slow. Yeah. Well, um, if, you know, 90% of attacks missing, but... Um... You also don't want to market a game exclusively to D&D players, because about half of them do not enjoy video games. They just, you know, pen and paper. That's where it's at. Yeah. Pen and paper and a bunch of fantasy books. That's, like, where their nerddom lies. Yeah, which is perfectly fine. Absolutely. You don't want to market it completely to them. Just over-complicating any game will just make people not want to play it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And More. what I love about Dragon Age Origins is it simplified... Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say simplified. It didn't. It rendered more accessible a lot of the gameplay mechanics, things like that. It made actually playing the game when you weren't engaged in narrative sections still somewhat enjoyable. Which, mm -hmm. I think, unless you were like a hard, hardcore D&D fan playing like the old school Baldur's Gate games, might be the first time that's been the case in a Bioware game. Like where yeah. gameplay isn't just serviceable, but it's also kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. um, no, sorry. Second time. We'll get to the first in a moment. Um, but despite that kind of streamlining, despite that increase of accessibility, the complexity of the story and the characters and the way you could interact with them was not dumbed down whatsoever. Dragon Age Origins is a really well-made game where every quest feels impactful, like it has multiple resolutions, like the resolutions to those quests matter, like your interactions with people around you matter. And that actually presents the player with some legitimately, like, kind of thought-provoking moral dilemmas. Um, like? Do you remember any in particular? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, while it's not much of a question for uh, someone like me, with my moral compass, something that I think would be tricky for a lot of people to negotiate if they get really um, caught up in the world's uh, lore and narrative, pertains to spoilers ahead for a game that's over a decade old, um, the conclusion of a, a questline based around um, a nomadic elvish population that you have to recruit mm -hmm. um, assistance from early on in the game. Um, for reference, elves in the Dragon Age universe are routinely persecuted. They are not mm -hmm. like this removed species who are superior to humanity. They're long-lived, they have great uh, magical aptitude, and they've been treated like dog shit and forced into deplorable conditions by like xenophobic human empires by the time the the game uh, the game's narrative picks up. So especially if you're playing the kind of character I generally do, that is to say the the goodest boy who ever was, um, <laughs> you're going to be deeply sympathetic to like the various persecuted classes, as I usually am for the settings mm -hmm. elves. And they've been plagued this one community of free elves that you have to visit and try to recruit help from by um, these, these werewolves, these cursed, afflicted people who have been uh, attacking the community and ostensibly picking them off one at a time. And uh, they're led by this um, ethereal spirit of the wood, like this dryad that you were asked to kill in exchange for full cooperation from the entire community. Mm -hmm. But as it happens, you learn that the truth is that the entire community is totally unaware that the werewolves that have been attacking them are humans that were cursed into that form uh, by their own leader as repercussions uh -huh. for something that other humans, horrible things that other humans did to his children like centuries earlier. And what you have are two factions effectively displaced in time, fighting one another to an absolute standstill. Um, and you have to choose ultimately who do you support, do you want to help this deranged, vindictive, very angry old man pursue a vendetta that might be kind of legitimate? Or do you want to help the innocent people he's punishing in place of, like, the actual um, um, criminals, even though it might cost you the support of the entire, like, tribe? 
uh, I always opted for the latter, and you can resolve it really well. But it the way it's presented in-game legitimately does make you think who's telling the truth, who's in the right, who's wrong, and how do I get what I want out of this situation since I need something from these people um, when I resolve this quest. I'm sorry, am I explaining this well? I feel like I'm not explaining this well. I'm getting what you're saying. No, no, I think um, it's good. And the, the entire game is just studded with uh, complex political and social interactions like this. And the same holds true for the absolute shit ton of DLC it received. All of which is great. All of which is phenomenal. Um, I will say the game's one low point, however, is this sprawling series of dungeons in the Dwarven uh, questline. Oh, I hated those. Where, like, all the great narrative and character interaction are effectively stripped away for, what is it, Tina, something like six hours straight? Something like that, but it was annoying as hell, and so... Just, Worst part of the game by far. Yeah, you're fighting the same two and three enemies over and over and over and over mm -hmm. again for hours. Mm -hmm. um, the rest of the game, though, beautiful, brilliant. Can't recommend it strongly enough. Uh, and we would be remiss in discussing a Bioware game without discussing how great the actual characters and party members you interact with are. Oh As yeah, I still remember Morrigan. Oof, she was so, so good. So good. Um, the great thing about these games and about Bioware games in general is that they generally tend to provide the player with a massive party full of individuals with very different viewpoints and ideologies, oh, yeah. moral orientations, and somehow, in most games, they succeed in making all of them likable. Even the ones mm -hmm. you disagree with. Absolutely. I mean, I remember um, uh, da -da -da, that most of the time I didn't really want to do what uh, Liliana uh, was wanted to do. But still, I understood why she was, you know, mm -hmm. thinking the way she was thinking. Like... None of them were ridiculous, ridiculously bad or ridiculously good so much that they did not use their head in their arguments. Yeah. The, the first time Bioware introduced a character to a game that I can say with certainty that I dislike, in the way that they're written, not the way um, they express themselves, though they do have, I would argue, the worst ideology out of anybody included in one of their mainline games that I can think of off the top of my head, was in Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, uh, they introduce They introduce a kind of uh, extremely bigoted mage named Viviana, or Vivienne, I think. Oh, Vivienne, yes. Uh, who advocates, despite being a magic user herself, the most hardline persecution of magic users, elves, basically yeah. any kind of people who are different, out of the entire party, and is very open and honest about the fact that, well, no, I'm doing this because it's best for me. Screw all of you. And that's never played for nuance. She's just a character, I guess, intended to fill an ideological void in the party for somebody who holds really nasty opinions without mm -hmm. the kind of nuance that is usually used in other better Bioware games. For instance, yep. again, spoilers, sorry, if you play through the main quest of Dragon Age Origins a certain way, diplomatically, thoroughly, do all you can. At the 11th hour, you can actually recruit the main human antagonist as a party member and have several impactful interactions with him. And he is a pretty loathsome individual in the way he's written, but he has, without going into too much detail really sympathetic motivations where even though you don't agree with him or I didn't, you can understand, okay, I get why this person is doing what they are. Mm -hmm. I get why they understand or they think this is best. Um, this never happens with uh, the character I'm talking about in Dragon Age Inquisition. Not once. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're unpleasant because we needed an unpleasant character. Uh, and I think the quality of character interactions, these little totally tangential ways that you talk with and interact with and develop relationships with the people in your party or who are around you at your home base throughout a Bioware game have come mm -hmm. to define their work, their library, m almost more than the grand stories that they tell, right? Mm-hmm, yep. How, how do you guys feel about those, like the party or character interactions and the, the importance they held to the story? 
Well, when I played first Dragon Age, I was uh, a very horny teenager, so I did not really uh, pay much attention to any character except, uh, what was his name? Alistair. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I was just fully only talking with him and Morrigan, and that was absolutely it. Later, of course, a couple of years later, when I decided to replay, I, I went... Um, I wanted to, you know, get all the dialogue options, just understand everything that was happening. And I was quite pleasantly surprised that even after, I think it was like 10 years at that point, um, the game was still so good to play. And the character yeah. interactions were so... Um, they were not boring. Like, I could go through the same dialogues over and over again, and I would not get bored. Yeah, absolutely. They're just so well-written, and a lot of them feel... I shan't say natural, but they feel like something that would be lifted out of, like, a more sophisticated, quote-unquote, type of script. Like, something for television or film, right? I mean, they feel like genuine conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting you brought up the, the notorious Bioware romances. Oh, yeah. Uh, because those are also a staple of, like, Bioware's catalog. The ability to enter into, your character to enter into romantic relationships with certain characters they grow particularly attached to. I myself, as, like, a fan of writing and character development, actually think this is a pretty nice idea and is usually mm -hmm. handled kind of well because yeah. it allows you to um, really interact more with or more personally with characters that you as, like, an audience member are really interested in. And a lot of the interactions between love interests in these games are written, again, maybe not, like, exceptionally well, but certainly, like, well enough. Like, I can't say I've seen anywhere I'm like, oh, that's, that's awful. Um, but my favorite approach to character development and interaction in a Bioware game comes from Dragon Age 2. Are you guys familiar with how that game did it? Um, I don't... Was it the, the quest lines? Not quite. Those were there as well. Um, there were actually two totally different sets of values that governed... Uh, well, technically three, that governed the way party members felt about you and interacted with you, and they were all more or less uh, separate. Okay, so dig this. In a Bioware game, usually, right, your party members either like you or they don't. You mm -hmm, do things that they approve of, or you go out of your way to help them in personal quest lines that are usually really well written, by the way, and were easily the best part of Mass Effect Andromeda, and they have a more favorable opinion of you. They may be willing to support you when their personal interests would normally send them elsewhere, right? Um, they may be more committed to the mission and work harder or what have you. Um, but in Dragon Age 2... A game plagued with extremely rushed development, thanks EA, um, and kind of a troubled narrative and uh, overall flow did character interaction better than almost any other game, especially big-budget game I've ever played. Here's how it worked. Yes, there was like a hidden value for how much your party members liked or respected you, how kind of how loyal they were to you or to like the little group, the family that you were like constructing. Um based on how often, like, or to what extent you supported them in their personal quests and things like that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. There's a second value associated with, like, kind of a romantic or intimate entanglement that basically just demonstrates or indicates whether or not this person is going to be, like, your partner throughout the game. But there's a third value that is not affected by the previous two what-so-fucking-ever that indicates their level of alignment with your personal ethos or ideology. And it's reflected in, like, I think what they call the friend-rival system or, or bar, where somebody can either be, like, a stalwart ally, they like you, they agree with you, they, they want to work with you, you share common goals and ends. They're, like, traditionally somebody who would have their values maxed out in a Bioware game, right? Or they can be a rival, Someone who uh, opposes your way of thinking, who opposes your way of doing things, and wants to convince you to do otherwise, or will act independently and do their own thing, but mm -hmm. still is loyal to the group, still is loyal to you. Like, yeah. doesn't mean you any harm, but disagrees with you. I, and... I think that was the case with the uh, mage guy, Anders, was it, right? Yes. 
I think I think I, I remember that I had quite a hard time pleasing him, but he was still always uh, like still good in my party. Like, yes, was like oh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have done that, but eh, all right. And the the interesting thing about the way that works is you could then have people who were uh, extremely fond of the player character who may ultimately defect when challenged by one of the villains. May, I don't know if this is for certain, but I think they might. Uh, if their, like, loyalty isn't high enough, right? Or you could ha be in, like, a passionate, like, sexual tension-fueled relationship with somebody who ideologically you can't stand. Um, and there are, in fact, different versions of loyalty quests, relationship conversations, all of that for just about every character for both the ally and the rival uh, dispositions. I think that's so cool. What about you, Potato? Uh, did you play the games? How did uh, you like them? I did not really play um, the Dragon Age games. I just didn't like the, the whole like, story and everything. Just For some reason, it just didn't hold for me. I don't know. Like there, There's stuff that I will just enjoy, even though it's like completely garbage. Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff that, that's objectively good, and I'm just like, this is good, but I, I, I'm not really like enjoying playing it. But I do like how Bioware like makes their like companions and everything because there's there's nothing worse than getting a follower in a game, and his purpose is nothing more but to do a little bit of damage in combat mm -hmm. and deliver three lines, one of which may be a hit at one point. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Like, you're useless. I think that uh, the 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 games that suffer from that thing quite a lot are the uh, Final Fantasy, not Final Fantasy, uh, Fire Emblem games. Some of the earlier ones, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they... Sometimes I, I was literally treating them as uh, cannon fodder because <laughs> I just did not care about them. So yeah. Or target practice. Target practice, yeah. Emma, yeah, dude, can you please stand over there just a little further, a little, yeah. just a little bit to the left, to the left. Mm -hmm. Put this up. Nice. <laughs> I think Fire Emblem made a serious effort to improve in that regard. Was it after Awakening, the the first uh, 3DS yeah. game? Yeah. And as somebody who's played Three Houses, I can attest, yeah, compared to the Fire Emblem games I played as a kid, we have actual characters now, and it's great. Yeah. And I love them all. Um... Also, it's a minor thing, minor little Dragon Age thing, but uh, you get a dog in the first two games and you can name oh, that yeah, dog, do. so 10 plus, like, like yes. 10 points plus. Um, I named mine in Dragon Age and Dragon Age 2, Dog and Dog 2, respectively, because uh, I'm the most creative. Mine was called, uh, in Dragon Age 1, was Astor, and in Dragon Age 2, it was Beppo. <laughs> Both yeah. great names. Yes. Um... I, before we we uh, head off for this this episode, we we may return to Bioware once my my book arrives in the mail, and we can actually chronicle their really really bad output. Um, yeah. But I wanted to talk briefly about their other trademark series, uh, Mass Effect, the um, mm -hmm. galaxy sprawling exploration and interaction based um, sci-fi epic that is really the closest we're ever going to get to a rock solid like Star Trek uh, RPG. Um, Mass Effect, I don't know, this might just be me with my personal bias, but doesn't it seem like Dragon Age was very popular, but it was Mass Effect that caused just about everybody interested in games to be aware of, like, who and what Bioware were? Oh yeah, most definitely. In fact, hold on, sorry. I think Dra Mass Effect 1 might have come first, actually. Um, but... Uh, chronologically? Uh, yes, it did, by, by two years. Uh, Mass Effect was released 07, Dragon Age Origins 09. Huh. Um, and I must say, the most significant contribution to, or the most interesting aspect of the Mass Effect trilogy, to me, is that they started this practice wherein a player's save file from a previous game could be scanned for things like important choices, uh, character mm -hmm. relationships, and all that. All of which would be carried into, over into, and impactful within the story of the next game. So, if you want to actually obtain 
Sorry, I can't talk about, like, a good ending for the whole trilogy because there is no such thing. But if you <laughs> want several smaller quest lines to be resolved favorably in the third game, you have to have done very specific things correctly in the first two games. Mm. And so, what they were able to develop is a video game trilogy that honestly felt like a film trilogy. You get to spend time with the same characters, some but not all of the same settings, actually a lot of original settings in every game, which is an A-plus for me. Um, you get to grow with and experience this world in a fairly continuous fashion over three games released across the lifespan of an entire console generation. And your choices made in 2007 still mattered, until the very end of the game at least, in 2012. And to me, guys, that is so significant. That is so, so cool to see like a big budget series do that. Yeah, that's true. Like, not many uh, game devs would do that. Where it's like, oh, you have a save game from this older game? You know, you don't just load it up. It might get you something. But then again, they, they made the Star Wars MMO. That's mm -hmm. right. The Old Republic. Amazing, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was just like a mediocre MMO. <laughs> I played it during the, 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 the alpha test. And it was like, oh, nice, you get choices. Wow, light side. You get choices. <laughs> well, you're playing Star Wars, so, you know, you got to be a Jedi. You got to be a good guy. No, you can go dark side. You but can be a heroic Sith. Yeah, but like in the grand scheme of things, the choices were nothing. It's just, no. you know, you have one stat, which is, you know, light side, dark side, and you just, you know, click black between them. And it's just the only thing it decides is uh, which quests, I think. I think it affected which quests you can take. And some, yeah. Yeah, some, and what kind of gear you can wear. And that was it. Like, nothing. It was like, um, you're going through a zone and you're making, like, not-so-good choices, but it doesn't affect any of the other quests. No, no, and I think so much of that is due to the fact that it's a, well, it's a friggin' MMO. You've gotta have, like, a fairly consistent world state, so... There are yeah. all these weird disconnects where, like, at the end of a quest line, you'll be given what, in the story, right, in the narrative, is a really impactful choice. Do I let this person live or do I kill them, even though they might try to kill me later on? Do I um, save this group of people or that? I don't have time to save both or whatever. And then as soon as the cutscene's over, you're just thrown back into the same exact world uh, with nothing changed whatsoever. Yeah, literally nothing. And it's just like, oh, well, that was nice get choices but it's just an illusion of choice but like, like uh, an mmo needs to have like a like a you know stable world and no no it doesn't like just make something where like players choices like um uh, what's it called elite dangerous which is yeah. not entirely an mmo of source because you can play uh on your own or just with a group of friends but like the the actual politics of the universe is decided by players. Like which quests do you do? Yep. Which party do you support? And stuff changes, and you know they uh, make stories and put out stories so you can like follow it. And that makes it more fun. Absolutely. Um, of all of all games, uh, Eve Online does something similar. Oh yeah, they they do it really great. Even though it really hard to get into it mm -hmm. it's a fucking complicated game um i mean it's still very popular so oh it's super popular yeah mm -hmm. eve's like player politics are so complex there have been actual history books written about them oh yeah okay, what i yeah, own I, several yes like i what? enjoyed the game like i i couldn't really get into it because it requires a lot of your time and learning and everything like but reading the stories like of their wars of how yes. some would join the corporation and scam them for everything they have th those are just great there there have been players who effectively found their own countries in game uh like organize pseudo professional fleets um engage in like corporate warfare and all of this and yes to the point where it's it's chronicled like online and off like in what have come to be like halfway decent actual histories it's amazing 
yeah, like wars, heists, scams, just there's everything there. Mm-hmm. It goes beyond the game. All of this from a game where 90% of your time is normally spent like just clicking on a rock over and over again. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to <laughs> on that point, um, I think kind of what the Old Republic was going for could have been viable because I remember from my time playing it, the story itself, even though it wasn't integrated into the gameplay in any meaningful fashion, was pretty good for a lot of the classes. Oh yeah, um, it's great. But it felt like even if you wanted that recurrent user spending EA baby, um, it would have been better. And they even released, I think, like the uh, the Knights of the Endless Empire expansion, kind of in this uh, in this same vein, like releasing with every major update or asking players to pay more for like episodic single player lengthy instances or adventures where their choices really do matter. Like, give the player their own kind of isolated storyline that they might have to pay more for, that they might have to purchase separately, whatever, and have that be where most of the impactful choices and character um, developments are made. And then have a more traditional MMO where a little bit of that has, like, narrative tie-in. Does that sound better? Yeah, actually it does. To the point where I again I think that's more or less what they did. <laughs> it's, it's I don't know. It just it did, didn't feel like it didn't play it later, especially not after it went free to play because generally MMOs that go free to play are just. Anyways, um, so far we've been talking about the good parts of Bioware. How about we switch to, um, the bad parts of Bioware? Actually, if it's all right, can we save that maybe for another episode? Because if we talk about the uh, Bioware, A, I need my book, and B, okay. um, the development history gets really sorted here, and I've actually mm-hmm. put together an entire narrative for this. Like, th- we've just been Alrighty. spitballing this. Mm-hmm. The, the troubles Bioware encountered, especially after they were uh, consumed by the um, all-devouring memory hole of uh, electronic arts Mm -hmm. gets way more in-depth and actually a lot more interesting. All right. Um, So in that that vein, uh, is there anything else we'd like to add today? Not from my part. I think we can uh, go to the closing words. Uh, Mate, anything you'd like to add, sir? EA sucks balls. Yes, it. indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, and and then they charge you for each of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, you... through loot boxes though, you might or might not get a ball. Loot balls. <laughs> yeah, loot. <laughs> Do they function? Do they not? Are they instead just a pair of jingle bells? We don't know. Surprise mechanics. <laughs> Only for four ninety nine. You keep getting the left one, can't get the fucking right one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that's gotta be the final comment of the day. I can't top yeah. that. Oh, my lord. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today for a fairly casual um, journey through Bioware's early days and some of the highlights of their catalog. I hope that we can return in the future to tackle their uh, more iniquitous recent history in what will be a far more um, in-depth episode and discussion. Uh, We do hope you'll stick around for that. And again, we can't appreciate your time anymore. Absolutely love all of you guys. Um, Feel free to follow the podcast right here or on one of our other platforms if it would be preferable to you. The podcast is currently available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes, so feel free to download it to the platform or platforms of your choice. Following it is and shall remain 100% free. Um, I, until next time, am Brady the Overanalyst on Twitch and associated social media, joined as always by Martina or Seth the Overwitch on Twitch. Yep, bye. Mate or Comrade Potato. Bye. Take care, ladies and gentlemen. Have a wonderful rest of your day.